Hello, it is Janina here. I am just here at the beginning because uh, we did a goof, or I did a goof uh, in this episode, so I just wanted to clear it up, that I know that it is wrong before you listen to it. Basically, for a, for a wee while, I talk about two czars called Nicholas, when I actually mean to be talking about two czars called Alexander. So I'm very sorry about that. And uh, now on with the episode. Привет, Janina. <laughs> I can't say that. <laughs> Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm pretty good. Um, I'm excited to um, lean really hard into some Russian words this week. Yeah, I'm excited to hear you. I, <laughs> I, um, it's an incredible and intimidating language and I know nothing but Dasvidanya, which I will say at the end okay. um, very enthusiastically. I know some Russian words. Um, I used to work in a Russian language research library, um, which was fun. So I can read a bit of Russian, but I really enjoy the Russian language and really enjoy leaning hard into the syllables. So yeah. I'm going to apologize to any Russian speakers <laughs> in advance uh, because it's probably not going to be fun for them, but I'm going to have a great time and that's the most important thing. That's literally all we care about right now. We will care about the other thing in the future when the episode is out, but right now as we are talking. Yeah. Hopefully maybe people will just enjoy my joy. I hope so. Anyway, anyway who, who, are, who we? are we? Who are we? <laughs> uh, we are her History and Sexy. You are Janina. And you are Emma. And between us, we answer people's history questions that they cannot be bothered or do not want to Google themselves. Yeah. Um, and if and new newly we have some merch available if people would like it, um, which you can find links to on our website historyissexy.com. We have had actually we have had a few questions on Twitter about the sizes because um, there is a limited range based on I think they're just like the UK High Street, which is everyone yeah. knows is not the most inclusive size range, but they are working on it. I think it's just a bit. Um, they, I don't know. I think it's an economics thing. They just have to make sure they can do it in a way that doesn't mean you have to pay more for larger sizes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but we're working on it. Timo have assured us that they, I mean, that they're working on it. By which I mean, we tweeted about it and they said they were working on it. <laughs> which, <laughs> so, we so we're taking them at their at yeah. place value. I don't know yeah. how long it will take, but hopefully not too long. Yeah. Um, and you can also support us now on Kofi. Um, if you want to give us regular money or general money, um, and thank you to the four people who have signed up to um be our regular supporters, we yeah, appreciate really, really you very much. Wonderful, thank you so much for that. Um, and particularly thank you to Theo GB, who I realised literally today, um, tips us every episode, um, <laughs> which is extremely. <laughs> Uh, kind of you so thank you very much Theo we do notice you and we appreciate you yeah thank you um yeah about four, uh, four people two of them are just called someone um and one is called Philip and one is called Valentine so and they're all wonderful and thank you very much someone someone Philip kind. and Valentine yeah yeah um, um we will try and pay you back by being a little bit better this year than we were last year at putting episodes out <laughs> <laughs> we will um, and in fact, we're going to reward you um, greatly because this is our first, I think our first multi-part episode. Yeah, we're doing a series. 
It's a series. We've gone full you're wrong about. Um, <laughs> Not full. It's only full you're wrong about if it's like 20 plus episodes, I think. If we say it's a three part episode and then a year later we're still doing everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. uh, all right, we're going mini you're wrong about because <laughs> we got really carried away with the research for this week's question. Um, which was from Richard Cosgrove uh, and was about the death of Rasputin um, and was, is read, is the death of Rasputin the greatest lie was ever told? Um, and after we got into l- looking at Rasputin and reading about Rasputin, we realised that you can't really understand Rasputin until you understand Russia. Um, so, so we're going to try and explain <laughs> Russia. <laughs> Uh, and then we realised that there's like a million weird conspiracy theories and stories and myths that don't really fit into the death of Rasputin, but are fun to talk about. So we're going to do a whole episode on those as well. Yeah. So we're going to start today with basically what was the deal with Russia in 1916? <laughs> in 1916, um, when yeah. Rasputin was killed and just before the revolution started. Um, because Rasputin is connected to the revolution, if not as directly as suggested by hit animated film. (laughs) Not quite as directly. No. No. Um, It was not caused by Rasputin cursing the Romanovs. (laughs) Which is what happens in that film. As it turns out, it's a lot more complicated than that. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thunk, Janina? Who would have thought it would ever turn out to be more complicated than than it? Can you believe it's not just a curse? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can't. I also can't believe that Anastasia is a full 10 years older when the revolution happens than she is in that film. Yeah. Great film, though. Cracking music. I love it. (laughs) I've still not seen it, so I can't really comment. Uh, One day I'll watch it. Um, So, right, what we're going to do this week is we're going to basically talk about how Russia politically and culturally got to where it was in 1916. So 1916, Rasputin has become one of the most important men in Russia um, and has a distressing amount of control um, over the Tsarina and over political um, political appointments um, and that's causing problems. But in order to really understand why it's causing problems and why what the situation is in Russia, we need to understand about 100 years of Russian history. <laughs> so we're going to do our best. Um, I learned some good things from this, like uh, where the word Soviet comes from. Yeah, I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was good. So you're going to learn that in 20 minutes or so. Uh, <laughs> I learned what the movie Battleship Potemkin was about. Yes, same. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the Battleship Potemkin uh, was renamed the Pantelamon, which is of no interest unless you have read um, his dark materials, in which case you, like me, are like, hey! <laughs> uh, I have read it, but I did not remember that. Oh, is that the name is of is that the name demon. of her? Ah, oh, okay. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's irrelevant, but I enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and we also kind of need to understand the Romanovs and who they are um, yeah. and what their deal is. Um, so yeah, so let's do that. Yeah, let's. So, deal is that before eighteen sixty one, Russia is 80% peasants. 
Like, and not just peasants, serfs. Yeah, half of that 80%, so like 40% of the population, is serfs who are effectively slaves. Yeah, they're slaves, but you're tied, they're tied to the land more than they're tied to people. So if someone sells their land, it's like, and here are also the serfs who come to work the yes. land for you. Who live here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and they have no rights at all. Um, they cannot move. They cannot leave their land. They cannot really produce enough to sell and earn money. They belong to a serf holder who is sometimes different from the landholder. <laughs> um, and they have no rights there is no judicial system there is no system for protection of serfs uh, the only time that they might ever get to go anywhere is if they get conscripted into the army and the major problem with this from the perspective of the ruling classes is that this means that serfs have no stake in russia the country because russia the country does nothing for them so mm -hmm. fuck it yeah. And that makes them quite bad at being in the army. <laughs> because why would you go fight and risk your life for a country that does nothing for, for you? Exactly. They have been forced to go into the army and they just kind of roll up and go, eh, don't really care if we win or lose as long as I don't die. Um, which means that they are not committing great acts of heroism in order to like invade Crimea or fight the Japanese, or do yeah. all of the various things, because the Russians are quite belligerent. Um, and that's difficult, because Russia is like doing empire stuff at this point, and you, it's very difficult to do empire stuff if your army doesn't care. If a significant chunk of your army doesn't care, and is completely... Um, this is the other thing, they're completely uneducated as well. They are rural poor, in the most rural poor type of rural poor. And there is a very clear divide between... So they have this thing, which is called Solovsi. Mm -hmm. um, and these are estates of the realm, whereby, which are basically like social classes, um, but more like the Roman version of social classes. Where so they're it's like, more like legally a... prescribed. Exactly. You, you are so in you one have... echelon and you stay in the, your echelon. Exactly. It's not like class in Britain, whereby there's like four billion different definitions of class. Um, class and, in Britain and... is its own thing. We could do it like, <laughs> it, it is wild to be a non-British person living in Britain and see what see... kind of nonsense <laughs> yeah. is bound up in class. It is horrifying and hilarious at the same time and every time something breaks out on twitter i just watch it in complete bafflement um because it's, it's, it's there's a just nonsense. one thing you need to understand about social class in britain and that is that 100 percent of people are working class um, and everyone's <laughs> mum worked really hard so they could go to private school <laughs> No one is middle class and no one ever went to a private school because their parents didn't work very hard. And once you yeah. understand those two things, it's all very <laughs> clear. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's not like that where everybody claims to be working class. Um, it is a, a legally prescribed thing where you can be removed from your class if you're in one of the good ones. Um, and at the top you have nobles. So you can be like are... officially demoted from, yeah. from gentry to townsmen. 
Exactly. Mm. Uh, or more specific, like the um, merchants are <laughs> one which is if you come up in a census and are not do not have enough money to be a cent me in the census, then uh, it should be in the merchant class, and you're not allowed. Um, and then there's the priesthood, who um, obviously you can be removed from the priesthood. <laughs> Um, probably not very often, but technically you can be. Um, yes, yeah, so nobility, priesthood, merchants. Merchants are largely kind of tax collectors because there is not a booming um, economy. economy. Of, yeah, exactly. There's not a lot of goods being moved around um, before the 1870s. Um, then townsmen who are like local... Uh, uh, what's a good way of describing a townsman? Like a, a a local authority. Yeah. Um, and then peasants and then serfs. So a peasant is a serf who could technically move but can't because they don't have any money. <laughs> um, and what this means is that there are... I found a description which says that from this perspective, what you have is the people at the top, the nobility, um, mm-hmm. are the people who make the rules... Um, and they are effectively colonial rulers because they are ruling people who have utterly different standards, values, life. Uh, like in every way, the life that the nobility leads, which is had become much more westernised under um, first Peter the Great and then Catherine the Great. Um, mm. And like they spoke French as the official language of the court. Um, sure, everyone loves to speak French and feel fancy. Yeah, that's why they, whenever you're reading a Russian novel, there's always like three pages in French and that's sometimes untranslated and you're like, what the tits is this? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, why is this happening to me? Or they're just suddenly random conversations in French um, versus because French had been introduced as the official language of the court and they are effectively legislating for people who just have a completely different experience and understanding of the world. And who's like often really far away. Russia is very, very big, and so it's got so it's got a couple some you know cities, but most of it is rural and rural you know, and agricultural and like subsistence agricultural. Yeah, um, I don't know if you're aware, but the climate in Russia is not always pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> um, the good thing about it though is it's so big that it has so many different climates. Um, yes, yeah. Um, but so this is basically where Rasputin comes from. This is his background is peasantry, not serfs, because he was born after serfdom was abolished, but uh, very much peasantry and a rural life that is um, largely based on a community, uh, kind of a shared community uh, called an obshinya. Mm-hmm. see i told you i was going to lean into the words yeah um, I'm excited. <laughs> which are like um collectives that are arranged so that when something bad happens or something bad regularly happens uh like a blight or a poor rainfall or um or you know just somebody has a bad harvest then food can and and uh, necessities can be redistributed around the collective mm. um, to make sure that no one is going to starve in the commune. <laughs> yeah. Um, because otherwise people would starve if it was just pure subsistence farming. Yeah. 
Um, and on top of that, everybody has to pay loads of taxes. Yeah. But this is also a point where there's like a lot changing because you get... So serfdom is abolished by uh, Nicholas II in 1861. He was a bit of a liberal czar. He, he was. He was open to changing some things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not as quickly as some revolutionary thinkers of the time wanted him to be. Uh, but he did... No, that's why he was assassinated. After multiple attempts assassinated by um, by radical revolutionaries... Um, assassinated by people because he wasn't changing fast enough which i just think is a brilliantly stupid reason to assassinate someone because especially then because he succeeded by nicholas iii who was super autocratic and reactionary and undid everything that he had done so um and he did a lot like alexander iii sorry i think i said nicholas iii yeah the emancipation edict of 1861 Mm -hmm. um which was in part a response to their defeat in the Crimean War, where they had had an army of serfs against a coalition of France, the UK, Ottoman Empire, and Sardinia, for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Um, Who obviously don't have serfs and have kind of trained standing armies. Um, And they had done a very poor showing. um, And kind of in response to that, they abolished serfdom in order to give ordinary Russians a greater stake in Russia. And then he introduced loads of stuff like setting up local governments. Um, And in 1864, he set up Zemstva, which are like local governments which are going to like legislate on economies and deal with education and make sure that people have roads and that kind of thing. Um, And then... I'm not opposed yeah. to any of that. And then in 1863, uh, they ed- opened up education to everyone. So technically, it was no longer illegal to get an education. <laughs> <laughs> um, which meant that people could be literate. And then he eased censorship because Russia is a very has always been a very censorious country um, mm. and has always had, been, had uh, not particularly good relationship with the concept of a free press so he eased censorship in 1865 he introduced the concept of a judicial system with juries and lawyers in 1864 Mm -hmm. and then also started building railways across russia which meant that people and goods could start moving around this is is some good he did some good stuff Um, uh, apparently people are impatient i guess um, and it wasn't it wasn't flawless because there were still a lot of uh, like if you were in the peasantry you could now potentially buy land but um, probably couldn't afford it and it was there <laughs> accounts of um, peasants being charged way more than they should have been for land like oh yeah in much the same way as like when uh, enslaved people were freed in the south of America and they were like can we have some land please and everyone was like no. <laughs> you pay lots and lots of money for it um do you have any money no you don't then you can't have any land (laughs) yeah you can buy land you're allowed to buy land but you cannot Um, Um, and there were there were holdover problems from the fact that um the economy hadn't been great before the abolishment of serfdom um which had meant that people had been mortgaging their serfs yes they had um yeah there's a really good well um have you ever read dead souls by nikolai gagal I have not. 
basically, so the word that was used for uh, to describe a serf, like if you, you didn't say, oh, I own a hundred serfs, you'd say I own a hundred souls. Um, sure. <laughs> um, but censuses were not too great. Um, and so, and keeping track of how many people people owned and who were still actually alive was not great. Um, and so the story... Uh, Dead Souls is about a guy who goes around um, rural communities buying dead people um, from off of surf holders. So he uh-huh. buys their soul, basically. Um, and he just writes down their name and says they say he owns them. And he goes around and the, his plan is that he's going to mortgage all of these dead people. Um, oh, wow. And use them as... Um, as collateral for a loan and he doesn't actually have to worry about them because they're all dead um, mm-hmm. but that's and it's like a a kind of broad comedy of all of the <laughs> um corruptions and petty greeds of mm-hmm. um like and kind of stock characters from around um russian rural communities it's quite funny it's very strange in the way that all anything russian that says it's uh satire is as always like oh okay it's a talking bear sure um i'm sure it means something i don't know what but um but yeah but that's how uh but they would mortgage um their serfs in that way Mm. fun um fun fun for all involved yeah um but nick he uh did a good job he did an all right job um he was alexander ii was doing a decent job after his reforms, the so between 1860 and 1914, the number of books published a year went from 2,085 to 32,338. That's pretty impressive. Um, and between 1860 and 1900, there were went from 170 um, periodicals published a year to 606. Mm-hmm. And the newspaper circulation went from the tens of thousands across the whole of Russia to the hundreds of thousands because people were learning to read yeah, and this is, becoming and this is, more invested in their world. It's kind of um, one of the many ways in which vast things, vast growth was happening in different areas because towards the end of the 19th century, you get sudden massive industrialization where Russia had been kind of behind uh, the Western world. Um, and then there was massive growth in the, in the latter half of the 19th century, which led to an economic boom. Um, there was massively increased education. And there was also an incredible population boom. But basically, uh, combined with, with the increase of industrialization, education, and population, you have a and a sudden new industrial working class that goes from a few hundred thousand yeah. in the 1890s to three and a half million by 1914. So 25 years. Is that tw- yeah, 25 years. It's, yeah. It just grows an enormous amount. And they were, and which changes the whole social landscape of the country. Before this, most people are rural farm workers, peasants and serfs. And then all of a sudden you have all these people concentrated in cities um, with these new industrial factory jobs with appalling conditions, both at work and at home. Yeah. And previously, everybody's like concerns about the world went about 10 miles in any direction. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, people's concerns about the world started to include the concept of Russia and the, a, a Russian people and a nationalism and being concerned about the country, which on the one hand meant that they became better at fighting, not that much better, but a bit better at fighting wars. Um, but not. it also meant that they suddenly were like, hey, I'd like a say. Yeah. Um I why do we just let this one dude make all of our decisions because Russia is the Duma there is no parliament there is no um democracy there is nothing that even vaguely um enfranchises people in politics all there is is the tsar and then local governments which are run by basically local nobility um and the tsar can do whatever the tits he likes. Mm-hmm. Um, he has there are no checks and balances there is nothing to say that he can't do whatever he wants um, apart from being blown up with a bomb yeah um, which, which is, is what happens to poor old Alexander II eventually the uh, uh, revolutionary socialist terrorist group yeah which is this um... is a thing that I enjoyed actually um, which is I was reading a thing um, and basically the, this also developed a, a literal intelligentsia, um, like, and I read a thing that said basically it was the only place where you could really call the intelligentsia intelligentsia because it was the only place where becoming a terrorist was a legitimate career option. <laughs> um, and plenty of people did join these groups as, um, like as political activists whereby mm-hmm. their sole aim this is the Narodnaya Volya um <laughs> who killed Alexander II um, and their whole thing was they were terrorist intelligentsia and like all they did was yeah. be a so terrorist this- intelligentsia <laughs> the the idea being that um intellectuals and students who believe like had a kind of a romantic view of um Russia's peasantry and believed that the only way to to improve Russia and, and to make it less of a get rid of the Tsar and the monarchist system in general um, was through a peasant uprising. Yeah. Um, so a bunch of a bunch of students would move out into rural areas to spread socialist ideals and to stir up the the countrymen, um, which didn't really work because, as we've said, there wasn't the same sort of nationalist ideals and <laughs> no they were more the countries they were, were going to eat in the winter yeah uh, um so the more extreme among them began to advocate for terrorist attacks specifically with the goal of causing repression from the czar yeah. um because they believed that the more terrorist acts there were the more repression there would be and then eventually they would be pre repressed enough yeah. that the peasants would rise up and revolt against it um, uh, which they weren't eventually wrong about um, but, it did, but it is very yeah. stupid <laughs> it is very stupid and it did not um, succeed and, at the time this is like 1860s to 1880s and, yeah 1881 um, he was killed and they started in 1866 uh, four <laughs> attempts uh, eventually they blew him up and then Alexander III became uh, Tsar and was like no Uh, all of this is over everything that my father did was a terrible plan um and i'm going back to uh repressing everybody and any plans that you might have of representation uh are gone now yeah and Uh, he uh died of natural causes so maybe he he was on something (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, yeah, so that's how it was going. Russia was um, kind of gradually and weirdly industrializing um, and kind of moving in its own direction under the Tsar um, until 1905 when there was the first ever kickoff of um, workers' demonstrations. And it's a big um, demonstration led by a priest called Gapon. Mm-hmm. which sounds like somebody from a musical it does um and they went to uh hundreds of thousands of um people went to present a petition peacefully to the czar um in this is nicholas by this point um mm-hmm. and this is this is following a couple of months of strikes there have been there was yes, a strike that started been. at the uh Putilov plant in St. Petersburg and a bunch of sympathy strikes sprang up around it. Um, it's uh, I think the original plant was a musician's fa- munitions musicians a musician's, musicians factory <laughs> <laughs> which was providing uh, providing ammo for the Russia-Japan war that was going on very badly at the time. Um, but yeah, so this uh, after yeah. a couple of months of of sort of spreading strikes, they tried to deliver a petition to the Tsar at the Winter Palace. Yes, um, yeah. Nicholas II has been Tsar since his father died. His father is Alexander III. It's eighteen ninety four, um, he, so he's been around for a little while. He is a definite autocrat. He believes very strongly in the divine right of kings, and that the only person that he is answerable to in any way, shape, or form is God. Um, takes after his dad very much. Striking <laughs> is not legal in Russia, so all of these people have come to present a petition to ask for um, the right to strike, the right to have worker representation, so basically unionise, um, mm-hmm. the right uh, to have the rule of law, so people can't just do whatever the hell they like in their own factory, but to <laughs> have some kind of law that is applicable to everybody. Um and to the creation of a constituent assembly um, kind of parliament. That was their plan. Um, there was some confusion. It was banned. They showed up anyway. Um, people panicked and a hundred people were shot. I saw some claims that it was as many as a thousand people who were oh, really? who were killed at that um, demonstration. It seems to be one of those things where the margin of error on estimating how many casualties <laughs> there were is wild because I some claim 200 and some claim 1,000 and it, there's no... I, yeah, I, I don't know how to tell which is more accurate. But a lot of people died. Uh, yeah, a lot of people died and it really ruined uh, Nicholas's reputation. Up until then... People quite liked him because he was quite humble and sweet. And like, apart from being at his core an autocrat who believed in his divine right to rule and that he was fundamentally uh, a representative of God on earth, which is weird. Um, <laughs> he had been seen as a kind of little father who was the father of the country and the father of them and that they could talk to him. Um, but this was the first time that his reputation, which was about to take another decade's worth of severe beating got tarnished and he became now he looks like the kind of person who shoots on his own citizens um Mm. and this kicks off riots across russia and even in rural communities um people start to hit out at the people above them um and it draws people into uh 
political activism that we're not normally interested um and you see things like people in collectives um refusing to harvest their landowners crops or um destroying their landowners crops felling timber for their own use um mm-hmm. or re- like go basically going on strike so refusing to provide labor for their um nobles estates um some went and raided the manor houses and burned down the house um and expelled the noble from their land um and in cities there were massive uh strikes and in st petersburg there was uh what are called in english councils of workers disputes and what in russian is called a soviet yay yay <laughs> Um, so these are basically, uh, basically kind of unions, kind of workers, um, councils in St. Petersburg, the Soviet was chaired by everyone's friend Leon Trotsky. Everyone was waiting for Trotsky to turn up. I know, right? (laughs) Um, who spearheaded a general strike across Russia, um, in in response, in immediate response to a bloody Sunday, and between January and April 1905, 800,000 workers went on strike across Russia, and close to 200,000 people participated on the May Day strikes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's um, a lot. So it was big, um, and this included the battleship Potemkin. This is part of the... Um... The war with Japan, which was also going very, very badly, and there were a bunch, a bunch of mutinies across the navy, um, including that's the only one I wrote down was that there was one on Potemkin because there's a movie yeah. about it, isn't that fun? The battleship <laughs> Potemkin was part of the so they're they're in the middle of a war, um, and these strikes are going on, and they join in and mutiny and overthrow their commanders, dump them on an island, um. <laughs> And then they hold on to the control of the battleship for 11 days. Yeah, it's a good mutiny. It is a good mutiny. Um, uh, but yeah, but it basically means that it had this, these issues have spread to the military as well. Um, and it destroys pretty much the whole year of uh, 1905 and means they lose the war. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, it's, I don't think until... October that the railway joins the strike actually, but which, yeah. at which point all of a sudden food and weapons are just not able to make it across the country anymore. So it basically brings the, end. the entire country to its knees um, and causes Nicholas to make some concessions in the form of the state Duma. And just quite a big concession because it was the first time in Russian history, in thousands of years of Russian history, that there has been a an elected government whereby mm. people can have and can vote for something um yeah. on a statewide basis and have some kind of representation and a direct line to the to say this is what we want our country to look like um and he is called the October manifesto um he had a manifesto from earlier from a couple of years earlier which is where he said no one's going to do anything unless i say so um, and this was his second uh, <laughs> attempt um and he said that you know every man can vote um no law will take effect without the doomer's consent um and also 
um, declared that he was going to have a state council, which was full of unelected nobles. So also uh, House of Lords, effectively, to mess everything up. But it is a massive, massive concession um, mm. that is a big shift away from... Because the Romanovs at this time celebrate 300 years of their dynasty. Like, the Romanovs are a very old, very successful um, dynasty of... of monarchs like um, who have had hundreds of years of doing whatever the hell they want and nicholas believes in this very strongly that um people shouldn't have a say in their government and that it is weird and western and he's disgusted by westernization um and considers peter the great to be a disappointment to his uh to his line for westernizing so much Mm -hmm. um he said he did not love him (laughs) Uh, which is sweet um yeah so the first uh duma elections are held in 1906 and everyone joins in because everyone's having a great time the rural peasant population get vote in their millions um and as a result all of the most socialist uh (laughs) um People get in who have stood. Mass land reform programs are immediately put forward. And within three months, Nicholas has dissolved the first Duma. Mm-hmm. Three months. Um, <laughs> he holds he elections gave the old again. He try and it did not get yep. for it. <laughs> he holds elections again. And uh, it goes the exact same way. And a couple of months later, he um, dissolves it again. At this point, he says, look, this isn't working. Your opinions are all wrong and weird. Um, You all seem to want things, and I don't like it. It disgusts me. Um, A guy called Peter Stolypin manages to persuade him to not disband it entirely um, by reforming elections. I've used reforming there very loosely. Um, But by rejigging the elections so that rural peasants are completely disenfranchised. Um, (laughs) While industrial uh, business owners, factory owners and nobility are uh, given much more voting power. Hmm. Um, And that way he was not bothered with any pesky poor person complaints like we're starving, we're dying, we don't own anything. Um, And looked much more popular amongst people who already had things and that was very successful yeah uh, <laughs> as it happens <laughs> um it is during these years as well that you see the increase of the social democratic labor party um uh, which is basically marxism or a, an interpretation of marxism uh they were established in 1898 um and f- a few of the early marxists had come from the earlier um Narodnik movement but had changed their ideas in the intervening years the basic difference was rather than thinking that the revolution was going to sort of rest on the shoulders of peasants uh, they were now much more concerned with the industrial working class that had grown up in the in the last few years Um, and there were two schools of thought basically so you have the mensheviks who are a more classical traditional ideal the belief is basically that there needs to be there is essential to the establishment of socialism there there needs to be a prolonged period of uh, bourgeois capitalist industry so that the country could establish itself as modern as prosperous with Mm a with a healthy economy and that once everything was sort of rosy then there could be socialism so their goal was on the one hand, to push for a middle-class revolt against the 
Tsar in the still remaining semi-feudalist system, um, while at the same time educating working class people to make sure that they were prepared for several years down the line further socialist revolution. Um, and amongst that group, there is a divide between people who believe that this is um, specifically the only thing that matters is ending Tsarist rule and that others who really wanted they were in it for the long game to get to socialism in the end. But there was a split yeah. in 1903 between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, who believed that Russia's middle class was basically feeble and weak and would never <laughs> manage to do to, to achieve a bourgeois middle class revolution. And therefore, that power would have to be wrested by force by workers um, and socialism would have to be forced immediately, basically. Yeah. Um Obviously, here we get another fun celebrity fan favourite with Lenin. Um, yeah. <laughs> playing a key role Celebrity fan favourite. Every- <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves a Lenin. <laughs> yeah, right. Everyone always celebrates when Lenin comes up. <laughs> uh, right, yeah. Um, and they were very aware that this was a problem. Um, and one of the concerns when going into World War One, which is kind of the next big thing that happens, apart from a big defeat in 1908 as well, is that uh, the police chief um, of Russia, political police chief, so the guy who's in charge of keeping everybody not doing politics, basically, um, <laughs> whose name is Denervo, warned the Tsar that if they went into the war and it went wrong, that social revolution would inevitably manifest itself in its most extreme form. Um, and that they Russia would be plunged into a hopeless anarchy, the end of which cannot even be foreseen. Um, Smart guy. Which he turned to be out to be surprisingly prescient. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they were very much aware that there were... Um, Basically, as a direct result of this is why we started with the 1861 um, serf uh, emancipation, which is that coming directly, all of that, everything that is happening in Russia in the 1910s is coming out of that um, and coming out of the Russia finding an identity, finding a, a footing, having an educated populace who is trying to work itself out and having a czar surrounded by a nobility um, and a huge royal family of like 40 billion princes mm-hmm. um, and people who are called prince whatever and duke something something um, who are and this is one of the interesting things because about reading the memoirs at the time, because I read um, Prince Yusupov's memoir and Maria Rasputin's uh, memoir of her father and a couple of others, and they are so removed from all of this. <laughs> like, you would not know from reading their memoirs. And these are the ruling classes. You would not know from reading about them that there were any problems or anything of any interest happening in the country of Russia whatsoever. You would think it was 100% parties, dinners, and amusing pranks in hotels. I mean, this um, is what all of uh, Chekhov is about, right? Like, there's a bunch, <laughs> of, bunch of richos having a, emotions about their picnics. And then there'll yeah. be one one angry revolutionary who hates everyone, including himself. Who and, bombs them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... <laughs> Or tries could... to, but actually bombs himself <laughs> accidentally. <laughs> the thing with 
yeah, it, all of this feels like it's happening in a different world from the world that Nicholas and Yuspav and Rasputin are living in. Um, and Rasputin is probably one of the only people they've ever met who has actually experienced <laughs> uh, <laughs> like anything in between their, their like the world that they live in um, of parties and unbearable riches. Mm. Um and the rest like, of people's lives. It's so yeah. bizarre how completely how completely separated they are. And the person who called it, I think it was a guy called Eli, who called it colonial rule. Um, it is kind of what it feels like. That it is, like they have no interest in the problems of the people that they rule. They have yeah. no... Any time that they hear from them, they're like, can you stop talking actually <laughs> this is very you're harshing my buzz quite badly <laughs> i mean it is it is very removed from the sort of british ideal not that this was always how it it panned out but the ideal of british landowners who talk to their talk to their farmers all the time and have throw a christmas party and stride across their their lands to check up Give on everyone charity and their wives bring around baskets of goodies all the time and everyone knows each other and uh which obviously is nice if you get a good landlord and, and is you're still completely reliant on someone else's generosity for basic happiness. But then yes. um, that's just not, there is no connection here at all no. between who is in charge and who owns things and earns things and who are, who are the people actually doing the work. Just nothing I think the British ideal, like the thing that always strikes me is like the, idealization of the british understanding of its own nobility is the queen um like fixing trucks and when she during the yeah war. yeah um, like look at her fixing a truck um and look at the queen mother not leaving london and you're like that's this is a bare minimum <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a very um superficial fairy tale vision of a uh, ruling class who are connected to the people they rule and it's false but at least the belief that it should exist is there yeah whereas here it's just nothing there's no there's nothing there's nothing they're just like look we have no interest in you we would like you to stop talking um <laughs> we're not even going to pretend that we're interested in you um we're literally just going to disband this entire situation because it, it revolts us um it's very much like charles the first in that way um when people start mm -hmm. complaining to charles the first and he's like you know what i'm gonna do just not a cool parliament not interested <laughs> Not interested. <laughs> Not interested in the slightest. Can you stop talking? Um, yes. Then, right, next big thing, World War One. Yeah. A massive mistake made by everybody. Um, which we've obviously which... talked about the the catastrophic mistake that World War One was before. Um, but have. for Russia, it was... Boy, it was howdy, was it a mistake? <laughs> Boy, howdy, what a bad plan. And everyone was like, you know what you should do? Not enter World War One. Um... <laughs> And in fact, a significant amount of Germany's decision-making was based on the idea that Russia was in such a nightmare that uh, because there were yet more strikes going on um, <laughs> in Russia, there were some massive industrial strikes in St. Petersburg's in 1914. There was a whole um, series of reforms going on in the military uh, as a result of defeats in 1905 and 1908. There was a whole big thing um, and it clearly was not in any position to be entering a war. And so Germany thought, oh, this will be fine. Um, and unfortunately, Russia thought, no, a very good idea would be to join the war. <laughs> 
Um, partly because they had been defeated in 1905 and 1908 and their international status as an imperial power, as a power that has global heft, was at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because the growing intelligentsia and the um, educated um, populace had developed an idea of furious nationalism based on um, perceived Slavic identity um, and they felt that it was necessary to stand up for Slavic peoples, mm-hmm. um, their Slavic brothers in Serbia. Um, and everybody assumed, as we know, that it would all be over by Christmas. Um, and so they thought that they could go in, make a fuss, protect their Slavic brothers, um, intimidate the Germans a bit, and then everybody could come home and they could be very smug about how well it had gone. Unfortunately, not what happened, not what happened at, <laughs> at all. all. Also, Nicholas thought that um, it would be a great chance to basically introduce, um, basically reintroduce his autocracy. He would, he could stop having the Duma. Um, whenever he did get them in, he could have them arrested. They mm-hmm. arrested um, and tried five Duma members who were Bolsheviks because. Um, they voted against the war. When they had a vote about whether they should go to war, they voted against and said no. Uh, so they arrested them and tried them for treason. Which is not a great example of democracy in anyone's... No. Um, they also sense. closed down newspapers, um, introduced new uh, censorship laws, uh, arrested tons and tons of um, socialist revolutionaries, Bolsheviks and Mensheviks, um, just as a kind of preemptive effort just for being depressing um, <laughs> and put them all in prison. Um, they well, there was an excuse to have a real crackdown on um, mm. on people who were spreading socialist ideas and uh, and the concept of any kind of democracy whatsoever. So Nicholas thought it was a brilliant idea. Um, unfortunately, that lasted maybe a minute and a half before everybody <laughs> realised uh, that that was not how it was going to go. <laughs> and, yeah, the Russian experience of the war, notably, is very, very different to the British and French and German experience of the war, or the British and French experience, anyway, um, in that there's no trench warfare, there's no kind of nobody moving for years and years. What it is is a thousand-mile-long... Um, front the eastern front is a thousand miles long goes from riga all the way down to romania um and they are fighting the germans they are fighting the um ottoman empire um and they are also fighting the austro-hungarians um and it goes back and forth and back and forth and there are hundreds of thousands of refugees that are coming into the interior of russia as a result um and a army that's in chaos and massive munition shortages and everything goes badly almost immediately um and nicholas handles all of it very very poorly yeah he puts himself he he decides he wants to be the commander of the army and like show off that he's an incredible military leader and he is not that at all He's um, not. He fires everybody. Um, <laughs> every time someone says, hey, I've got a suggestion, he says, well, you're fired. And he makes himself personal commander of the army to the horror of literally everyone who's ever met him. Yeah, he's, this is not his calling. He's not He's not built for this. It's not his calling. And then to make it worse, he ponces off to military headquarters, leaving Alexandra, his wife, his beloved wife, 
in uh, St. Petersburg to fill the political void all by herself, which is a shame because one, she's German, two, she barely speaks Russian, three, she's weird um, and shy and doesn't talk to people unless she personally knows them, which upsets people. Um, everyone thinks she is a German spy who is actively trying to undermine the country and they thought that before the war. Um, and on top of that, she has a prime minister who is of German descent and this lad called Rasputin who's hanging around having loads of influence and being creepy. It's not a great look. It's not a great look. So Nicholas goes off to go and make some extremely poor decisions in the war, leaving Alexandra to just be weird. Yeah. Uh, who's even weirder. Yeah. Poor mm. Alexandra is like has as weird a life as it is possible to have as a princess. She's the granddaughter of Queen Victoria. She literally arrives on Ru- in Russia on the same train as the dead Alexander III. He dies while he's on a train with her. That's awkward. That is an awkward trip. <laughs> it's an awkward <laughs> arrival in Russia because yeah, he's gone like... to get her to bring her home and be like, look, here's your new, like, this is when I die, this is going to be your Tsarina. Here's like, we're going to have a beautiful royal wedding. It's going to be great. Uh, and instead what happens is this German woman who speaks no Russian comes off the train and goes, I don't think he's very well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> they have to marry in basically like in mourning. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody is still in mourning when they get married. They then get crowned a couple of years later. It takes them a couple of years to be have an actual coronation ceremony because everyone thinks it's going to go badly because she's immediately... Like, she's cursed, basically. Everyone thinks this is a bad omen. Mm-hmm. Um, there, a rumour goes round their wedding that they're going to run out of food. There's a massive stampede and a thousand people are trampled to death. It's... It's it is a it's not great. It's not it's not <laughs> great. <laughs> it's not great. So already like immediately anytime she's been put in public, something has gone very badly wrong. Yeah. Um so she barely speaks Russian. She also doesn't really speak French, so she can't communicate with anybody. Um she's also very shy, so everybody thinks she's boring, stiff and strange. Um she's also a massive prude, so she won't invite anyone who has had an affair or is too flirtatious to her parties, so there's no fun people at her parties. And um, sometimes people stop being invited because rumours have sprung up around them and she gets on the wrong side of a lot of, yeah. a lot of the nobility in general. Um, and that she basically finds solace in Russian orthodoxy, which she has to convert to when she moves to Russia. Um, her name is Alex, officially. Like, that's what she's born um Mm. and it's alice in english um but she takes her name alexandra when she becomes a russian autox and she basically takes very takes a lot of solace in god the church and in her divine right to be a queen um and i mean that is if i if i had a divine right to be queen i'd probably take some solace in that probably lean into (laughs) it pretty hard yeah um so she leans into that and she leans into religion and that is this kind of little chink in the armour that Rasputin is able to wiggle his way into. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so that is the situation that we are in in 1916. Um, in fact, 1916, yeah. everything has been going very, 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 very badly. Uh, yeah. Politics is in chaos. There's yeah. food shortages. Everyone thinks everyone else is a spy. Oh, there's a moth in my room. Oh. Um, <laughs> that's unrelated. But at this point, they've also sort of, like, Nicholas has lost the support of the army, which he had during the t- 1905 revolution. Yeah. Um, no one is on they've met side. him now. Um... They've met him now. He keeps <laughs> getting loads of them killed because he's terrible at leading an army. Um, basically, no one is Team Romanov. <laughs> yeah. Except for Rasputin. Um, and on November the 1st, so just before um, Rasputin is killed, the uh, Liberal Party leader, whose name is Pavel N. Mulyakov, gave a speech in the Duma in which he listed the many, many disasters that had characterised the war since 1914 and all of their losses and all of the terrible things that happened and the munition shortages and the food shortages. And they had had four prime ministers and five prime ministers of the interior in less than two years. Um, And he paused repeatedly to ask, is this stupidity or is this treason? That's a catchy phrase. It is a catty phrase, and he was aiming it in no small part at Rasputin himself mm. um, and Alex. And that is where we will pick back up next week, or yeah. in two weeks, um, yeah. when we're going to talk about Rasputin's life and how he meets Alexandra and how big his penis was and how many people <laughs> worshipped it um, and then how he died. Yeah. We'll talk about Yusupov, who I love. I'm obsessed with Yusupov. He is like the ultimate... He might be the prototypical, like, dandy floating about, like, just doing the most ridiculous rich person stuff. I mean, he was a drag queen for a bit. You know, you can't can't make it up. As (laughs) As a wee... Uh, teaser, one of my favourite parts of his autobiography uh, is when he talks about um, he he's really interested in, ter- in interior design and he, every time he moves house he talks at length about his interior design decisions um, including the interior design decisions of the room in which he murdered Rasputin um, <laughs> but he talks about uh, he basically made black carpets fashionable in London when he was living there. Um, And he talks about the fact that they were so fashionable that one man threatened his wife and said that the black carpet was depressing and she had to choose the black carpet or him and she divorced him so she could keep the black carpet because he'd (laughs) made them so cool. Amazing. That is just the beginning. Oh, Uh, I can't wait. Uh, yeah, so that's where we're going to be next week, and we're going to talk about our big players, um, and then, yeah, what happens yeah. to them all. Yeah, it'll be great. It will be great. Until then. Bye. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>